nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app, and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the pickup app today. That's PKUP, and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, and we're joined by somebody who's been involved in motorsport for a long time, but we're going to trace back as to where he started it all, his journey in this sport. Peter Wallace, later of Sydney, but now of the Gold Coast. Peter, welcome to Inside Supercars. Thank you very much, uh, Tony and Craig. It's wonderful to have you on board. Look, let's start at the beginning. You're from Sydney originally in the western suburbs of... Marylands. And one of five, six, seven kids. No, you had no brothers and uh, sisters. I was, which is, I was the oldest, uh, um, uh, oldest uh, son um, and I have two sisters. One, one year younger and the other one uh, two years younger. And um, in fact, uh, the three of us should not have been here because um, my mother should never have had children. Um, oh. She, she, but in her life, she, she achieved what she wanted in her life and died at 32 with a hole in the heart. So my sisters and I are very, very lucky. Oh, God. Well, yeah, I, I hope you weren't going to say that you were the eldest of three daughters, you know, because that would have been a shock for the start of the show. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not that funny. So Motorsport and Pete Wallace, how does it begin? Well, um, my father used to take me to uh, Liverpool Speedway and Castlereagh Drags. Um, then when I was eight or nine years old, he went to Bathurst, the James Hardy 1500. James Hardy 500, I think it would have been called. Uh, or Hardy Ferrado 500. Um, we went up at uh, four o'clock one morning and waited for the race to start, walked all around the mountain. Um, the first year, I think... Uh, we got to Skyline, and I can't quite remember the name of the driver, but it was the one that the GDHO Falcon rolled over, and it was basically in front of us. Um, I can't remember what year that was, but um, and then the next year we went up again, and I always wanted to be on the inside of the track, not at the outside of the track. <laughs> those days, those days, you're actually on the track in the pit lane. There would have been probably a little concrete um, section just outside of the pit lane and then the, that was the track after that so there was no walls in that days and the pits would have been all just timber sheds uh yeah that's that's what really got me was the the james hardy hardy Frodo one 500 so how, how did you make the transition uh well um when i was young i um, used to work in the you know, I made a little shed out the back uh, out of a house that was out the back of our house we had another little house and i knocked the wall out made a, a shed like a garage. I used to work on my father's cars and um, 15 years old, I'd actually um, pulled a three-speed Falcon gearbox apart and put it all back together with no special tools and uh, was very interested in um, you know, working on push bikes and motorbikes and what have you. I, uh, I got a, tr- a trade apprenticeship at a, an engineering company in um, Balmain, all types of engineering and forklifts and heavy industrial, industrial 
equipment. I stayed there for 12 years. Uh, as a fourth-year apprentice, I was a leading hand, and first-year tradesmen, they put me in charge. Um, so I was in charge of quite a few contracts for the government, Air Force and um, Army. But at the same time, I, was, uh, I met uh, Paul Mulhoon Sr., and um, his son, Paul Mulhoon Jr. And um, Jr. had uh, a Formula Ford, and I went and worked on that with him. Learned very quickly that I knew nothing about motor racing. And they put the car with Formula Race Hire, uh, but uh, under the um, understanding that Pete Wallace was going to go with that car. <laughs> and, and that's where it really started was Formula Race Hire, Greg Campbell. From there, um, Greg Campbell also had Michael Quinn that run the cars. Um, so my job on weekend was just basically anything mechanical because, as it turns out, Michael Quinn and his team weren't really mechanical. They knew how to prepare race cars and and do setups, but they weren't really au fait with, you know, bolt stretch and the right threads and that sort of thing. And I used to fix all the, anything that was mechanically damaged and just clean the cars and sit there waiting for them to go onto the track. Obviously, uh, as days, um, years go by, I had enough um, uh, enough um, experience to write uh, letters um, to people like Fred Gibson and Larry Perkins and Alan Moffat and um, JPS at the time were in Sydney, but um, funny enough, I never even replied from JPS, but uh, I got a phone call from Alan Moffat and a reply from Fred Gibson uh, stating they would be looking for people at the end of that year and uh, at the time they weren't looking uh, and Larry Perkins were the same. He, he rang me and said, come down, cock, and come down and do some work and see how you go. And so I worked out that Larry actually built the car and engines in Australia so I elected to uh, go there rather than Alan Moffat because his cars were imported uh, as I realised today, they, they are still worked on here, but it was more interesting that Larry did everything in-house. So I went down to work for Larry for two weeks, uh, went back to the workshop that I'd been in charge of, and um, they knew what was happening. And uh, that was a big enough company that they could actually ha have my job taken over by another employee. And I went back to Larry's a week later. I had to buy a car because I had a company vehicle. I had to buy a car and go back down to Melbourne all in a week. <laughs> Um, so, and um, I must say, Larry's is one of the best companies I'd work for. Um, very, very good engineering base. From there, I stayed a couple of years, uh, or a year and a half, actually. Um, I run, the second year I run Wynn Percy and Neil Crompton's car at Bathurst, or the chief mechanic on the car, and I really say, I wouldn't say I run it, but it, it was, you know, under my control mechanically. And I come back to, to Sydney after a year and a half at Larry's, so 89, end of 89, I started 90, I think I um, started to job. I, I came back to Sydney and um, didn't know a lot of people. I knew Dave Moore and I knew uh, the Formula Holdens were starting and I met Stephen Dewhurst probably at the end of 88 and 80. I'd come back each year at the end of the year and we'd go to a Formula Ford Mechanics Rides Day with Phoenix Motorsport. And I met Steve Dewhurst then, and um, one thing led to another, and <laughs> it turns out that he's my best mate now and uh, taught me everything really I know about race engines. But, yeah, come back in the end of 89, started with Simon Kane. I got a phone call through other people that had spoken, or Simon Kane's dad, Clive Kane, had spoken to different people, and Larry was supplying his engines for the Formula Holden, and 
courage suggested just bring me in. So I started on Boxing Day, um, went down and met Clive down at North Sydney. Uh, I was living in um, uh, Gosford at the time. I had a house in Gosford and um, went down and met Clive Boxing Day and we started pulling the car apart there and then. Some nights I'd stay down in the premises down there rather than travelling all the way home. It was about an hour and a half drive each day, each way. But um, uh, that was quite quite interesting. We were the first to have uh, Penske shocks, learned how to pull the gearboxes apart, the transmissions apart, transaxles up at Dave Moore's. He taught me how to do those. And, yeah, basically prepared the car for the year and we won the championship. How fast was technology changing on you during that period of time? Well, I don't think it was changing that that fast, not like it is these days. I think it was all very basic sort of engineering, but, yeah, I think these days it's changed a fair bit with CAD drawings and CNC machines. Even the computer that run the engines was very basic. Um, It wasn't really plugged. You couldn't plug a a, a laptop in and tune it. It was all just dials. So it made your job a lot more difficult because you were literally relying on what someone told you about the car, not a whole bunch of bells and whistles coming off sensors. Yeah, there was no no sensors. Like the engine was just a very basic ECU. Yeah, it just had a couple of dials on it for high speed and low speed fueling. Didn't have a program for ignition, but that was under Larry's control for that car. But basically I was just doing all the mechanicals and learning how suspension worked and geometry and what have you. It wasn't until uh, the following year I went to work for Phoenix Motorsport and Steve was there and doing Formula Ford engines. So we were going to do a program of Formula Ford cars and Formula Holden vehicles. I got taught to do Formula Ford engines by Steve and uh, understand very much the basics of stretching a, a bolt and understanding clearances and airflow through the manifold and cylinder head, how to pour the cylinder head and how to cut all the valve seats. I mean, I had a basic understanding of it, but race engines are a little bit more involved than that. And um, every day was a very big learning curve. You know, it wouldn't matter whether we were working on the car or the engine. Yeah, I was uh, quite lucky to have met a person like him. <laughs> And, and Dave Moore, and then even Mike Quinn. Mike Quinn you know, was quite good in his preparation and detail of the cars, and Steve was a brilliant engineer, so it was very, very good to work with those people. When was the last Formula Ford engine you built, Pete? I did continue to do some up here when I moved to the Gold Coast in 2000, and I was working for Paul Wheel, then Stephen Ellery, and then DJR. I did, I did the original engine that Jason Barguana had for a, a client that leased it off me in Sydney. It's now been sold back to a, a Scott Barguana. <laughs> I mean, he put it in a Formula Ford, and I think he sold it to a person called Donnie Baker. I'm actually doing one now for Mark Larkham. I've uh, got, a, I got a wrecked engine. Larko, and he wants, right. Yeah, Larko wants an engine built up, a copy of the Minister for his uh, 1990 Formula Ford, I think it is. So... I actually stripped the block down last Friday and I, I'm going to take the cylinder head apart tomorrow and um, send it away for acid washing before I start doing anything else. Uh, <laughs> so this isn't a young a young Larkham who's uh, going to step into the seat, is it? Or is just a Larkham no, getting no, something no, of his history no. back? No, it's just Mark wanting to have his original championship winning car 
Um, no, it's not for his family, no. no. He, he might have a run in it, but it'll just be, uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, Stones Brothers have just I sold one today, I believe, the, the Marcus Ambrose car that I did an engine for. I've done the engine for Marcus Ambrose's car and uh, Russell Ingalls' car out of bits and pieces from the roof uh, of their uh, engine shop. Um, I did that in 2012, 2011, 2012 for Ross and Jimmy. They've been sitting around that long, dyno-tested, waiting to be down to cars. So I think it's just like um, everybody's building up old, historic supercars, Formula Fords, what have you. There's interest in doing the work, and there's there's probably good money in, in doing it if you ever want to sell them. You know, so, yeah, I mean, he may eventually sell it one day if he ever needed money, but it may be just something he'd like to have sitting there that he's proud to own, you know. It was probably about that time that uh, you were working with Mark Larkham that I first met you, oh, yeah. working on the Illusion. Yes, well, I think that's, that name has been used with that vehicle, uh, and I first heard of it through the people at Stones Brothers. The word Illusion, some people might think that that's what it was, but the engineering behind that car that was designed by Stephen Dewhurst. It was the first person, first car in the country that had it across at the firewall for rigidity. It was the first car in the country that had billet inlet manifolds and carbon fibre trumpets. It was the first engine in the country that had negative crankcase pressure that made a considerable gain in awesome. And for them to use the word illusion, I think there's just a bit of jealousy there that People weren't smart as Stephen Dewhurst. Pete, Very I'm not in any way. <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> I know it's a word people uh, yeah, yeah, use, yeah. but I look, know you're not. <laughs> yes, I know you've got no, no. Look, Stephen look, Dewhurst. Absolutely. A gypsy as he was known. Yeah, um, nickname. Uh, look, I can remember hanging around the garage looking at that car and, and uh, you know, there were so many aspects of it, the, the centralised seating, um, yeah. the, the unfortunate thing was, and, and Steve actually talked to me about it, not on record, didn't record it or anything like that, but we yeah. I talked because I went and visited him when he was doing helicopters. Yes. And uh, one of the things, of course, is that Steve came to realise afterwards that he'd forgotten about the weight involved in the cars and yes. that things on the cars. In a similar way to uh, the Triple Eight when they first, when Ludo arrived and was doing the Triple uh, uh, Eight cars, those first Falcons, and that, you know, at Bathurst, they were just smashing uprights and, and uh, wishbones and things like that over the mountain because, you know, the cars were n were far heavier than anything he'd been involved in. Obviously, Steve, being an open-wheel background, um, it was just very different. Look, there were there were so many aspects of it, and Mark's talked to me about it, and I've had long chats with Pee Wee Siddle as well, that, yeah. you know, if they'd gone the more conventional route and bought a chassis and things like that. But nevertheless, you know, there are some things that Mark did in that car, including that pole position at Bathurst, that uh, will always go down in, in the record book and, and things that he, he and everyone involved should have been proud of. So you were there up on the coast building V8. Formula Ford was something you had done and you'd go back on to do again. But was the V8 paddock was somewhere that was welcoming to you? Yes, I was, uh, I mean, I did the Larkham engines because of Steve Dewhurst. He trained me and um, he he asked me to come and work with him for that vehicle. But then after that, uh, it was Mike Axel, Mike Axel of Gary Rogers Motorsport that passed on 
Gary Rogers' customer engines, customers to customer engines to me, and that's where I started doing you know supercar customer engines. At the time, I was doing just about every brand of Super Tourer four-cylinder in the country for Adderton and Terry Morris, and that was an eye-opener to how all the English companies did engines that were all a two-litre capacity, and they were all completely different arrangements from one brand to another, inlet and exhaust, uh, and they all probably achieved the same thing. The thing I had in with supercars was I was um, Ian Pollard of Sydney. Uh, he was a Motec agent, and he felt also that I could do something good for anybody in supercars. So he got me the job at Paul Wheels. He was involved with Paul Wheels at the time, and so I packed up, got a phone call from uh, Keys Wheel, and packed up and went to the Gold Coast in t- 2000. Uh, Formula Four was slowing down, uh, Super Tours were slowing down. I did formula holden engines as well but that was like from 90 to 2000 so teams doing formula ford super tours formula holden and supercar engines uh, all from my garage in glossford dynoed them down in sydney if i dynoed them he'd do it done in sydney the super tours there wasn't a super tour dynoed and never, never had one fire but i also did my own spec formula ford engine i built four of them at least four of the engines and unfortunately, I don't have any. Well, I have the photos; they're in a computer somewhere. <laughs> Whether I can get the computer open, I don't know. But it was especially built Formula Ford. Like, just started with a crankshaft, I and mean, the crankshaft would have looked like a supercar crankshaft, all legal and all done to the letter of the law in Formula Ford. But if you looked at it, the way it was machined and milled off the big end, mainly, it was like a supercar crankshaft these days, unless the holes drilled into the big ends and i'd never seen a supercar crankshaft of of the current era but the i mean supercar paddock was welcoming there's nobody sort of any gripes <laughs> i get on with everybody you you then spent a period of time working for stone brothers yeah well uh being up here on the gold coast i did a year with paul wheel a year with Stephen ellery no not quite a year but um let's say a year then djr's for two years there was some more issues there that I was sort of not happy about, so I left and went to Team Dynamic. They only run for a year, but then uh, they allowed me to use their workshop for the second year, and I won the championship with Adam Macro. I had the engines come up, the Ford engines come up from Adam Macro's team, Howard Racing or something. We won the championship with Adam Macro, and then Stones Brothers were having problems, same as what DJR were having, and um, I got a phone call from Les Laidler, and I know I knew Ken Douglas fairly well, and I'm sure he had a lot to do with it. He was a technical director at the time. So they employed me to try and sort out their problems, which obviously I did, and refine their package to what they are today. And I've still refined them even further outside of working from them. Stones Brothers were quite good. Their, their, their engine facility is what DJR Pensk use now. So it's a very good facility. It's not quite as good as the new KRE. Engine shop, Kenny's engine shop is probably the best in the country and always will be. I don't think anybody will spend the money that they've got on a, a facility. Um, it is just beautiful, just like the Americans have got, or any, any shop in England or any shop in America. I'm sure Kenny's is based on that. And they're really, really nice. In the same way that Kenny does speedway engines, sprint car engines, you you do that a, a fair bit or just a, a small amount? No, no, I, um, I'm only, I've never had a lot to do with speedway till this year. I have a friend or who I started with, Greg Campbell, he has a friend, Reed Mackay, that has got a midget. And so they're having some issues and they had some issues which is basic. They just didn't have the fueling set up correctly as, as a basic starting point. 
did was went and sorted that out for them and could hear that the thing was missing the first time I went out. I just looked at the book, looked at what Kinzer says, how to set it up, set it up, went out there with him to the next meeting and he felt like it had over 100 horsepower more. He said it was unbelievable, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't believe you could steer it on the throttle, which is what you're supposed to have done. The, the engine was rebuilt by his grandfather and it was just never set up properly. The, the rebuilding of it was never, the need, it was never needed to be rebuilt, it just needed to be set up properly with the fueling. And so they've run it for a season or so and sent it up to me and <laughs> it's probably the worst engine I've ever seen in my life. But it'll be right when it's finished and it'll make a lot more power than it did before. I'm not looking to have a business in Speedway. I'm just happy to help a young, young driver that had – he's got a very good driver, just didn't have a very good setup on his engine. So definitely not looking to make a business in Speedway. I mean, Kenny does a great job, but I'm not looking to make a business. I'm close to retiring. But um, I more enjoy the supercar thing, and Kenny has actually got me uh, uh, doing all the mapping for Brad Jones at the moment. So I'm I'm hoping to stay with them till the end of the season, possibly even into next season. If they don't go to Gen 3, there's possibly a job there. I think Brad's pretty happy with what I do for them, and I don't see that. I don't believe I've got a problem with Kenny. Kenny's the one that got me to do it. So, When you're talking about a supercar engine nowadays, there are a lot more controlled parts than you would have uh, been experienced with back at SBR or going back further. What's well, it like now trying to, trying to work within the box of the rulebook? Well, the at Stones Rubbers the first year in 2007, um, yes, it was more open slather with, the, let's say, your camshaft. These days, the camshaft is controlled and so is the rocker ratio. Uh, but that, that came in very early in 2008, 2009 or something. So the engines in supercars now, I reckon, within, within 1%. So let's say 6 to 7 horsepower. I had 5% in Formula Ford, so that's 5 horsepower in 100. So... You can still get gains if you look at things properly, but I think the difference will be the tune, getting the correct tuning for for the track conditions, tuning it right down to the, about 3,000 revs, just, not just tuning 100% throttle. You mentioned about having listened to Reed Mackay's midget engine and worked yeah. out it was a, a fuel injection problem or a fuel problem there. How do you tune a supercar engine? Is it by ear or is it by data? Oh, no, by data. And the Speedway people, some of them have got not, not data as accurate as um, supercars would have, but if Reed's was just a basic problem. You know, just, the starting point was completely wrong. With that type of engine, and I'm not very familiar with methanol, but I'm learning fairly quickly. I'm not looking for the last one horsepower in that engine for that person, but I'm sure it'll be better than it ever was. But in supercars, you're looking for the best you can get in every throttle position and not just 100%. The tuning on the supercar engine these days is there's there's a point there. They have a rule called a breaching rule, and you're not allowed to run it lean anymore. So you can't, Stones Brothers, that fuel economy was awesome at Bathurst or any other track that needed to have fuel economy. <laughs> I know that I was, I had a pat on the back from Roland Dane at uh, Homebush one year where we, we beat them. We were able to run around so lean on fuel without hurting the engine 
and then turn it right back up for the last 15 laps with Slady and um, for Tim Slade, and we won the race all second or something and they they couldn't believe the fuel economy we had and power but the supercars these days yeah they've got a breaching rule so you can't go port past 0.9 lambda uh for more than three laps uh and then they've got a safety in the car that puts two percent more in but once you've put it in you can't turn it off so you've got to tune and i was doing this at townsville because i've only been in the main series again this year for since tasmania and we were very close to breaching it at uh, south australia uh, on one one bank, not on not on both banks, not the whole engine, but uh, at Townsville, the fuel economy race, I didn't go so close. I was aiming for sort of 9% breaching each lap, but as I worked out that the driver can cause the problem. If he goes to the rev limiter and changes too close to the rev limiter, it'll just up the percentage of breaching and it'll go over. So, and, and they can, in some parts of the track, depending on which way they drive it, it can put you into breaching very quickly. So now I'm only aiming for like 6% breach and having a bigger window. Across a weekend, how much are you making little adjustments playing with that MoTeC software? After every session. Or actually, with the, with the, with the telemetry, the, the, as an example, um, Adelaide, when it was in the race, I'd been tuning it while it was in the race for the next race. At Townsville, they'd had a fresh engine put in for the second Townsville meeting. It went out. It was breaching on one bank. He came in. I changed the map on the fly. I was changing it while he was driving, put the map in. It didn't breach the next time it went out. And that's the reason Brad Jones wanted somebody sitting at the counter looking at the, the, the telemetry so that, Instead of having to wait for the session to finish, contact KRE, uh, get the boys down, look at the data, change it. I've changed it before these sessions finished, and in a practice session, I can allow to change it. So I, and 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 you're further down the road with tune before you get the the, the final lapse data out. Then can you go back into the truck and tune even further for the next session. And are you doing this, you're putting the new MoTeC program onto a thumb drive or are you plugging in a computer and doing a data transfer that way? Yeah, just, yeah, it's just on the laptop, changed on the laptop, plugged into the car, put straight into the ECU. The map might take an hour to change but the in the laptop, but then putting in the car is only a few seconds, yes. Getting ready now for what is talked about as the next generation, Generation 3, have you got any thoughts on the way in which they could go or should go? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I've tried to ask questions of people that are involved uh, because at the moment, well, I'll go back a step. What I'd first heard was it was going to be one engine, one crate engine for every vehicle. The vehicles were supposed to be cheaper. It seems like all that's out the window. Now, for what reason? I've heard that Ford did not want General Motors to have their engines in their vehicles. Whether that's correct, I don't know, but that's the way I heard it. I know that Kenny's on the back foot because he thought it was going to be one supplier, and so now he's had to go out and try to get an engine together and have done a great job in, in time, as he would. He's got a fantastic company there and quite a few employees, so he can get stuff through very quickly. But the, the the cost is still going to be more than they think, whether it be the vehicle or the engine. But um, 
I would have thought <laughs> you could have stayed with the current engine and got 8,000 k's out quite easily and saved cost that way. You know, I mean, I was the first to get to 5,000 k's. We were doing 5,000 k's for the last three years from 2009, to, uh, 2010, 11 and 12 at Stones Brothers. We were changing it all the parts at 5,000 k's and I've obviously got vehicles in Super 3 and some of those parts will definitely go to 8,000, 9,000 k's and the whole engine can go to 8,000 k's in, in, in a level one situation, I would have thought. Given the time you've worked in them, what's the weakest point? It doesn't matter whether it's a Ford or a Chevy. What's the weakest point in the current engine that we've got in terms of trying to get it to go to those extra kilometres? Would be the rocker, as far as I can see. And I believe these days they have a shafted rocker, back to a lot of Formula Ford runs, instead of needle bearings, and that would last 8,000 k's. So no needle rollers in the shaft or the needle tip, the rocker tip, and that gets rid of the, the problem of the rocker. The next thing would have probably been the lifter. And what weakens that? It's, got, it's the needle rollers. No, they've gone to a very big roller lifter, which we had at SBR, uh, but I believe they've gone to bushes with those too. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I've spoken to somebody else that said one brand has a bushed lifter, but, yeah, I, I, I haven't used them myself, and I've got well over 9,000 k's out of a needle roller lifter, the big-bodied one. What's the disadvantage, say, of having a bush? Because I remember years and years ago in the 70s, uh, Alan Moffat, I think, was pushing for changes like needle rollers and, and different types of rockers. Now it seems like we need to change back for the longevity because we're not chasing performance as much. Well... Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> engineering was correct 100 years ago. It hasn't changed. Needle rollers were supposed to be less friction because they're, they're a high point contact. And like we're talking a needle roller that's not much bigger than two millimetres in diameter. Some of them are smaller. Some of them are less than a mil in the, in the, in the um, Jessel uh, rockers. Um, that high point loading, or, or it's actually it's more, it's more the heat treatment and the, the thickness of the heat treatment you can't get consistency. So when one breaks down, that's it. It only needs one to break down out of the 20 or 30 that are in them. So uh, the the bronze bush, it might wear and get a bit of clearance, but it won't destroy the engine. It won't have metal fall apart and go through the oil pump and destroy everything. It sounds like the changes they're going to make to a new engine and a new style of engine is going to cost these team owners a lot more than just trying to fix the problem with the existing. Well, if, if you're talking about the Gen 3 engine, the Ford is a multi-valve and the, the Chev is a pushrod. But I don't think they're going to use these expensive components in them because they're trying to make the engine cheaper. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a world of hurt with reliability. It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, uh, Pete? Um, it doesn't make a lot um, of sense. It, I mean, the, the, the manufacturers, uh, General Motors and Ford, Ford obviously would like their Coyote engine in, and it's a very good engine. GM, they've had to come up with one of their products, but they've got to, you know, KRE have got to come up with it at a cost. That's, that's where it's going to be unreliable. It's not going to be KRE's fault. It'll be that it's had to be built to a cost. And until you get mileage on them, you're not going to know what components are going to need replacing or aren't going to last. 
Yeah, I, I think I think there could have been a lot more conversation about the Gen Three with a lot of a lot more experienced people, not just engine people, but experienced engineers. And they may not have necessarily been in this in the category. They could be speaking to Steve Dewhurst or Larry Perkins. You're going to get black and white answers from those people. The other aspect of part of the next generation car is the paddle shift. Potentially, how much do you think it could save or cost, depending on which direction you go? If if you were to go to a paddle shift, how much could it potentially um, over conventional uh, gear shift that is sequential anyway? Well, I think the, the 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 reason they're talking paddle shift is because you control the you can control the downshifting and blipping of the throttle, and I believe one of the engines or maybe both the engines are going to have hydraulic lifters, hydraulic components in the engine and. Uh, there's some suspicion that, that they may damage the engine if you over-rev it, whereas paddle shift could st- stop that happening uh, or lessen that happening. So the cost, I wouldn't think, was significant. It, it's almost become a political issue, as you'd be aware. There are a vast number of people in the driving uh, section who are adamantly opposed to it. And in fact, at Triple Eight, from what I understand, Jamie has advocated for a paddle shift, where his teammate in Shane Van Gisbergen has said that he doesn't think they should go with them. It's wrong direction for the cars. Uh, it's a, it is a polarizing uh, point, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I do see the politics of it, and something I'm not very good at is politics. I like to be black and white. It's very difficult. I would think, for a person that is in a company manufacturing a vehicle to not be influenced or try to influence what they want. If if all the drivers got together and it was 9 out of 10 saying manual gear shift, well, to me, it's majority rules, you know. But, yes, I think when you're in a situation where you can have a big say and not really, I'm not sure you understand the reason why, but, you know, that's, that's politics. <laughs> oh, and I don't like it. Yeah. But um, Shane Yang Gisberg would be black and white. He doesn't like it, doesn't want it, happy to drive it that way manually, and most other drivers are like that. And I think it's probably a good thing to be part of Australia. It's an Australian category, and we're, we manually blip the throttle and, change gears with your hand, and that's how we drive them. Might be a nice thing to keep it that way for a while. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not against uh, moving forward, but, you know, it'd be nice to have a good reason to move forward. Indeed. Now, knowing that uh, most of our lives in some way, shape or form is not dictated necessarily, but um, is measured in numbers, do you... Uh, have a record or have you kept account of the number of Formula Fords, the number of V8 engines you've built over the years? To be honest, no. But <laughs> but I would have to do at least 10 a year. And in my early days, you'd probably do more like 20 because they were only, only four cylinders. So in the last 20 years, 10 a year, 
And I must say that I I prefer to work for people like Stones Brothers or Dick Johnson or Mark Larkham, Mitre 10. With all the facilities they own, you can do, you know, you can do development more accurately. I've become a customer-orientated person because every now and then that's what I've had to do. Or in the beginning I had to be like that because I, there was no people to work for in Sydney. So I was in my own business yeah. for 10 years because there was nobody to work for. That's why after that experience I was able to go to the Gold Coast and work for these teams. And even now, I mean, I've just bought myself a new factory. I've been there for 12 months now, somewhere nice to work, but it's more an investment to be able to sell one day because I can't afford to buy a dyno or what have you. I still use one. I've got a, I can use one of four or five. But, yeah, my preference would have been to stay with Stone Rubbers if they'd have continued. And so with working for a team, yeah, I mean, there was three or four cars at Stone's Rubbers and I didn't do every single one of their engines. We had nine of them at the end, nine that belonged to Jimmy Stone. Uh, the company itself would have done a lot more than that because we had four rooms, for trip, one for Triple Eight, one for Brad Jones and one for other customers um, and one for Stones Brothers. But, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't I like to do a lot of engines. I just like to do them nicely. And I'm the only one that works on them, so apart from the specialised machining, um, so if something goes wrong, it's my fault. I don't often have anything go wrong. Did you work on the Mercedes engines? No, no. I, I was finished then. I was doing the Fords for Matt Stone Racing then. Right. Uh, I um, I do know that the, I had an engine, a Ford engine apart one day there, and the boys come and ask me, could they borrow the manifold and the uh, trumpets? And those trumpets were actually fitted to a Mercedes, and that's how the Mercedes ended up running. Basically, the same same inlet as a Stones Robbers Ford had on the Mercedes to get where they needed to and go. And, of course, there's that wonderful, that wonderful tale of uh, one of the SBR engines, one of yours probably, that did travel to Germany. Uh, yes, yes, one of mine did travel to Germany. Uh, I was supposed to go, and then some politics come involved, uh, quite disappointing politics. <laughs> um, but that's how life turns out. What did the Germans think of your engine? Well, from what I heard, they couldn't believe the sort of numbers that were coming from it. But I also heard that to get it onto their dyno facility, they had to destroy the exhaust system as it should have run. So it probably wasn't at its peak performance over there, but they were nowhere near the numbers that the Ford had. I believe they got there but that was once they got back to Australia after two years. It was an amazing program uh, to run, and uh, I've spoken to Dave Stewart on several occasions about it, and obviously an awful lot of people did an awful lot of work in a very short time, but uh, an extraordinary moment. Um, Tell me, um, with the Gen 3 engines, are you likely to get involved in that program in some way? Have you sort of put your hand up to uh, get uh, an involvement building those engines? No, no, I, um, I'd had been oh, the last three or four years, you know, Kenny had spoken to me, Steve Amos had spoken to me three times, three, three years in a row and then nothing comes of it. So, no, I don't, 
I don't see that uh, I'll have anything to do with those. Um, when I said before they need to get people involved, that would have meant a long time, you know, at least a year or two ago. And I mean, I don't know the man, but the, Sean Seymour, you would think that he may have reached out a bit further than he actually has because basically it's control from the people that are below him. Um, and if you don't know them, they just deal with the people they know, you know. Yeah, but like I said, I mean, even just Larry Perkins, why wouldn't they have not got Larry Perkins to have had, you know, a couple of conversations with people in supercars about the chassis, about the gearbox, about the engine, um, and then, you know, move on from there. So I, I believe it's nearly too late. It will be what it is. It'll be it what it will be. It does seem an extraordinary thing. Of course, uh, you know full well that a lot of people know a hell of a lot more than those who went before them anyway. Pete, yeah. um, it's been terrific to uh, get some of your stories. We uh, certainly look forward to a time when we can come and talk to you at a racetrack. I'm sure that you'll be itching to get back and uh, see your beast out on the, the bitumen somewhere very soon again. Thank you for joining us Inside Supercars and We'll certainly be in touch. No worries. Thank you very much. Talk to you again another time. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.